welcome to Radical Math Talk, the podcast dedicated to the revolutionaries in math education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfamensa, and on this podcast, I will highlight the incredible educators who are reshaping, redefining, and decolonizing the way that math education is taught in our schools. In other words, this will not be your typical math podcast. My goal is to center the stories and hidden truths that will not only ignite a cultural paradigm shift in math education, but more specifically, explore the multiple ways in which math can be used as a vehicle for social justice and anti-racist solidarity. So if you are ready for a math revolution like no other, then sit back, relax, and lend me your ears as we embark on this journey together. Enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody, to a brand new episode of Radical Math Talk, the show for the revolutionaries in math education. I'm your host, Kwame Safamensa. And if this is your first time tuning in to the podcast, I welcome you and I hope that you do return for future episodes and new content. And if you're a returning listener or viewer of the podcast, I welcome you back and I hope that today's episode is one that you find informative, enlightening, and exciteful. So before we introduce our final guest uh, for this calendar year before we go on hiatus, uh, just a reminder for those who are on YouTube, please make sure you hit the red subscribe button so you can get future notifications on new episodes of this podcast when we do get back on in the next calendar year, 2023. But you could also check out past episodes of the podcast either on YouTube or you can go to our main website at identitytalk4educators.com. And for those who have been asking about how they can contribute monetarily to our Identity Talk platform, uh, we do accept donations through Cash App and Venmo. If you are on Cash App, our handle is money sign IDTalk4Ed. And if you are on Venmo, you can reach us with our handle at K-W-A-M-E-S-M. That's Kwame SM. And we appreciate all the support you've given us throughout the year, given that this is our first season uh, with the Radical Math Talk podcast. Uh, this was a brand new initiative, brand new idea that I just thought of because I just have a profound love for this discipline. And I appreciate everybody who's been a part of this journey throughout this calendar year. And we look forward to continuing it in 2023. But that being said, um, we can't end the season without introducing this next guest. Uh, He is somebody who I've had a chance to learn more about in recent months. He is somebody who has an inclusive vision about what math could be in our society and how it can not only reach math lovers like myself, but those who may have a disdain or feel like math is something that just doesn't fit into their lives. So he is someone who just does many things to promote and advocate for the use of math and how it can be a vehicle for improving society, a vehicle for empowering those who 
are in this world. So I'm just excited to, to bring this gentleman on. Uh, we're gonna be talking about his book, award-winning book, Mathematics for Human Flourishing. Just got my copy a few days ago and I look forward to digging in and really getting to know more about our guest tonight. But uh, without further ado, I wanna make sure we get into this conversation and bring on our guest, uh, Dr. Francis Sue, who is going to talk with us about his book, his math journey, and all the great work that he's doing uh, in the world. So uh, let's bring Dr. Sue on to talk with us. Hi, how's it going? Not bad, how you feeling? Doing good, doing good. Thanks for uh, having me on your, on your podcast. Well, thank you for coming on. Uh, it's an honor to have you on. Um, I've just been following your work and it's greatly appreciated by myself and, and those of us who really just believe in math and love math. So I thank you. Thank you. So usually when we start our podcast, we like to start from the beginning. So we have this thing called a mathography. Um, the mathography is just basically your autobiography with math, how you fell in love with it, how you first encountered it as a child, how you've been able to, to evolve with math over time, um, and how does it still stay with you to this present day? So however you want to start the story, sir, um, let us know. Um, what does math mean to you? What's your story? Sure. Yeah. So I, um, uh, I guess I should introduce myself. I, I, uh, I teach at, uh, at a place called Harvey Mudd College, which is a science and engineering school in Southern California. Uh, and I've been doing this now for 20, maybe 26 years. Um, I, I guess I first started uh, getting interested in math uh, when I was a kid. My parents, um, would give me things to think about, um, books about with puzzles in it, um, uh, or interesting math ideas in it. Uh, and I, I got fascinated by some of the, the beautiful things that I saw in it, like the ideas that you can, uh, you can do certain things, um, uh, in more efficiently, but also more interest in more interesting ways than, so I'll give you an example. So like, um, uh, I think at one point, one of my, one of my parents' friends came over and asked me if I could add up a bunch of numbers together. Uh, and okay, so here's an example, add up the numbers from one to 10. Uh, now, of course, as a little kid, what I would do is I would just, add, you know, I would just one plus two plus three plus four plus five plus et cetera, all the way up to 10. And of course, it's very slow. And, you know, maybe you, you look at that and say, gosh, you know, that that take forever to do if you ask me to add up the numbers from 1 to 10 or 1 to 100 or whatever. Uh, and so, you know, my, my, my friend, my parents' friend said basically, actually, let me show you a better way of doing it rather than adding it, uh, adding all these numbers up. Uh, he said, actually, if you think about the numbers living on a line, you know, with 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, all the way up to 10, uh, and you take the first and the last thing on the list, what do they add up to? And I said, oh, 11. He said, well, what if you take the second and the second to last thing? What do they add up to? That's two and nine. Well, they also add up to 11. 
What about the next ones, three and eight? They also add up to 11. So then he said, he had me notice that basically you get a bunch of pairs of things that add up to 11 if you move from the outside in. And he said, how many pairs do you have? And I said, uh, I guess you have five pairs if there are 10 things in your list. Five pairs of things that add up to 11. Oh, that's five times 11, that's 55. And I, you know, as soon as I saw that, I was like, wow, actually, that's beautiful, right? Like that's a, that's an idea that's like easy to, to see once you see it. Um, but, uh, but it's, you know, an insightful idea that you wouldn't no naturally notice unless you were mathematically trained, right? Like, so that's like, whoa, you know, like the heavens opened up and you suddenly see something profound, right? Right. And from there, you know, you're naturally led to ask, well, what about uh, adding up the numbers from one to a hundred? Like we can all do this, right? And now that we've seen that idea, the beautiful idea, pair things up from the outside in, the first and the last thing in a list of one to, numbers from one to a hundred add up to 101. Oh, these, all these pairs add up to 101 and there are 50 pairs. So that's, 50 times 101, and suddenly that's a much more efficient way of doing it, but it's also a more beautiful idea. I think that was when I first saw the beauty of math. Wow. And you know, what's devastating is, at least when I was taught math growing up, we didn't really get a chance to discover the beauty of math in the way that you described it. You know, it was always just, here, take this algorithm. Yes, yes. Go ahead and just input numbers in. See what it see what it comes out to. We never got the chance to just uncover these mysteries uh, for ourselves. So for you yeah. to be able to get that exposure at such an early age, I'm sure it allowed you to have a different perspective on math that was very different from a lot of your classmates um, as a child. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I was fortunate to have people in my life who, you know, who were able to show me some of those things that were that were enchanting or, and, and beautiful. And, you know, when you have experiences like that, when you're able to have experiences like that, you know, it creates in you an expectation uh, of enchantment, which is one of the things I like to say a great math education builds is an expectation that you're going to be enchanted. Uh, you know, each time you come to math and you see something interesting or beautiful, that's what keeps you coming back for more, right? Like, yes, there are some things that we need to learn how to do in order to, to experience some of that enchantment. But if I know that there's some enchantment coming, I'll definitely be willing to, to work hard in order to experience it. Well, yeah, for sure, for sure. Now, when you think about your own journey in math and how you were able to discover it. I just want to know, in your opinion, what does it mean for you or anyone to be a math person? What's your personal definition of that, uh, given the path that you took to get to um, love math the way you do? Yeah, well, I mean, I think obviously my perspective on this is changed a lot over the years, right? Like, I think, you know, growing up in, 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 uh, I didn't really have a, a, a good perspective on, 
uh, on what math is and how it's, you know, how it, how it's uh, connected with what it means to be a human being. And so, you know, if you asked me, like, like many people, you know, when they're kids, uh, what is math? We think about math as just like being a better calculator, right? Like somehow, uh, somehow uh, all math is, is following procedures, right? Once in a while you get a, a glimpse of that beauty. Uh, and I think, you know, over time I, I began, you know, when I grew up as a kid, obviously my identity started becoming wrapped up in doing math, right? And so, you know, when you, when you get praised for, for being quote, good at math, uh, that's, that it starts to be, you know, you start to begin to think, oh, maybe I am, quote, better at math than everybody else, right? And, uh, and so that's a very different view than I have now. I think one of the things that I, you know, over time I begin to see is that, first of all, you know, being, being good at math, everybody's a math person, in my opinion now, right? So uh, what do I mean by that? All of us are human beings. And part of what I try to argue in the book is that as human beings, we all have basic human desires, right? We all have a desire for beauty. We all have a desire for truth. We all have a desire for, you know, one of a number of other things. Uh, and math can meet those desires. And, and, and so part of what, you know, I would say now is, 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 uh, is central to doing math is, is, understanding what it means to be a human being and how math can meet those desires. And from that perspective, if we're all human beings and math meets human desires, then we're all naturally um, have a capacity for math because it's part of what it means to be human. That's, mm -hmm. that's what I, I think I see now that I wasn't able to see back when math was just being a better human calculator. So when you say that, and I'm just speaking as somebody who has taught middle school math for many years. And the struggle is to get my students to build their intrinsic motivation. Yes. To want to engage in math in the way that we do and to be interested in it in the way that we are. So right. in order for them to really see the beauty of math, is it a matter of changing our curriculum or making adjustments to it or is it just more about addressing the i guess the social emotional um impact of math i i think it's probably a mixture of both right like you know in some sense we have um uh in some cases curricula that aren't inspiring or not exciting um uh, and uh, in, in other cases, we have situations that in the classroom where people are made to feel shamed uh, for not being, uh, not being, quote, good at math, whatever that means. And, and often at the lower grades, it, it, it looks like being fast. Uh, but, you know, if you're a, a working mathematician, speed isn't really part of, it isn't really, it doesn't have anything to do with mathematical ability. Uh, and so it's kind of a weird thing that we do sometimes in in creating uh, a, a classroom environment, a culture that that some somehow prioritizes speed. So you know, there's there's so there's both you know components. I mean, a, a good way to think about this uh, is to think about what happens in some other 
you know, um, pursuit, like basketball, right? Like, you know, um, there's the piece where you're like, okay, um, why would I be inspired to get good at basketball? Uh, and if you told me that the only way to get inspired or, or that, that is to just shoot a bunch of free throws, I'm not going to, that's, I'm not going to find that exciting. Right. right. What's going to get me excited is the thrill of watching a really great game and seeing people do amazing things that I can't do yet. Right. Like somehow, you know, uh, be able to make these beautiful shots. Uh, in, in the heat of the moment, whatever it is, right? That's inspiration. And so once I see that, then maybe I'll be motivated to do those, to shoot a number of, of free throws, right? Like to practice. But you, you really aren't going to be motivated to practice unless you see the beauty of the game. So that's one piece, right? Then the other piece, of course, is these voices from outside. They're telling me, oh, you'll never be good at basketball because you're, you're an Asian, <laughs> whatever it is, you know, like, Somehow, um, people discount, um, write you off, uh, or make you feel like it's not something that's for you. Uh, and so, I think both those pieces are really crucial in in developing a good, healthy math identity. Mm -hmm. So, when you were growing up, because I know, you know, you're the son of Chinese parents, right? Do you believe that there was more pressure for you to perform as a result of that? Because we always hear about the model minority myth as it pertains to performing academically and just being able to be at the top of the class. Did you feel that pressure personally growing up or was uh, it a different experience for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly had very traditional um, parents, um, in, uh, Asian parents who emphasize the importance of education. Uh, and, and so I did feel pressure. Um, it was probably, I mean, it wasn't out of proportion, but it was a healthy, I think, a healthy pressure yes. uh, to achieve. Um, yeah, I would, I would say that. I mean, on the other hand, I, it's, in some ways, I think we, we spend a little bit, you know, too much time thinking about math as achievement uh, mm. and, uh, rather than something that can be enjoyed. And so yeah. uh, as much as my parents, you know, pressured me to, to achieve in math, uh, I think one of the things that, that um, kept me grounded was, uh, was my enjoyment of math. Yes. And it goes back to what we were talking about with regard to being a math person, because I look at my own story. I was a math major during my undergrad years in college. And I realized how much more challenging the classes were compared to my K to 12 years, because I was dealing with more classes uh, that were focused on theory, focused on conjectures proven theorems as opposed to doing computations that were straightforward right um so when you go from doing your basic algebra and your your geometry to now you're doing differential calculus now you're doing number theory now you're doing um linear algebra 
and, and all these uh, different classes, which you didn't really do during your K-12 years. Now it's like, maybe I wasn't as good of a math student as I thought. Mm. I thought I was hot stuff. Mm, right. <laughs> you know, coming into college and then all of a sudden you get humbled and it gets to a point where your confidence starts to waver. Right. And I think for me, after I finished uh, my undergrad, I made that decision to not continue my mathematical pursuits, at least within higher ed. Mm -hmm. I just felt like, okay, this is my ceiling. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not going to be going into a master's program or a doctoral program to further pursue math because that's not that's not really the lane I want to travel. Mm -hmm. Like I like math, but not at that level. So mm -hmm. for you to even say that, and for you to have this concept of math for human flourishing, it allows individuals like myself to feel like, yeah, I'm actually a math person after all, even though I might not have yeah. uh, studied math to the highest degree. Right. Yeah, and I, I think that you're 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 getting at I think a key a key um, question which I think everybody needs to wrestle with, and that is what's the purpose of learning math and what's the purpose of doing math. Uh, and we I think we can run into um, into problems when we think when we answer that question. The purpose of math is uh, is just to get a good job. That's one mm. potential answer. Another potential answer is. The purpose of math is to show how smart I am, right? That's kind of the achievement mentality. Both of those are achievement mentalities. Um, rather than saying, well, gosh, you know, let's step back a moment and ask um, what, we, what we hope for ourselves uh, uh, and uh, our place in the world uh, is to flourish and to help others flourish, right? Like that's a, that's a different purpose for living uh, than the idea that somehow everything's connected to uh, should be connected to achievement. So you know it changes the way we we teach, right? Even uh, it, you know if if we teach towards achievement, then we're going to teach kids to try to be better human calculators. And lo and behold, the funny thing is, um, now we have machines that'll do any of those algorithms faster than humans, right? So. Yeah. Why, why are we trying to teach kids to be better human calculators? But you know, on, on the other hand, if you think about teaching mathematics uh, as a way of, of promoting human flourishing, then what you're really trying to do when you educate a student is to build not just skills, but virtues, right? Virtues like persistence, curiosity, creativity, uh, an ability to tackle problems you've never seen before and not be, not not be phased when you you hit a setback right because you're an explorer at heart and you push on even though you encounter an obstacle we're trying to build kids who are going to be enchanted by thinking about math deeply right these are all virtues that will serve a student well no matter what goes on in life and so yeah you know like if you think about what's needed to if you really want to get practical if you want to think about what's really needed in the workplace um if you think math is just about careers well it's not the skills because those things are easily replaceable by 
computers and by sure. artificial intelligence. It's the virtues that employers are looking for, right? They're looking mm -hmm. for kids who can create, who can visualize, who can imagine, uh, and who can innovate, right? And that's that's really what a math education should be building. Yeah, I agree with all that uh, for sure. And so if math should be about all those virtues that you mentioned, how can we get to a place where we're getting our pre-service teachers training that's focused more on that as opposed to traditional pedagogical practices, which are also important and serve a purpose. Yes. yes. But it's not everything when we talk about how we should be delivering uh, instruction in math. Yeah. Well, I think I think first of all, math teachers uh, need to be better at framing the purpose of math for students, right? Being able to say to students, why, why are you learning math? Uh, uh, it's not just skills. I, that's, as you said, it's, it's skills are important. Like I'm not saying that you shouldn't learn how to, you know, you shouldn't learn your times tables. Yes, you should learn your times tables. Yes, you should learn how to do algebra. Yes, you should think about, you know, uh, you should know how to do various kinds of things that you learn. But, but, uh, but I think we need to be better at framing for students that, hey, actually what I'm trying to teach you in this class is not to solve problems that you've seen before, but to be able to solve problems, a new problem that you've never seen before, right? Like that's part of what you should get out of this class. By the end of this class, you should be able to think about a problem creatively and with persistence. And, and so if, if we're gonna get serious about promoting a different message for what why math should be done. Another thing that needs to be changed, and probably the quickest way to change things is to change our assessments. Oh. We have to change what we're testing. Uh, not to say that testing isn't important to learn, to assess what, what people know, but if you're gonna assess stuff, don't just assess skills. Yes, yeah, skills are easy to measure. Right. That's why we have worksheets with 100 problems that all look the same. Right. We feel like we can measure something. But we also need to be assessing uh, creativity, persistence. Right. We need to be rewarding students for being persistent on a problem, even if they aren't able to solve it. Right. Like, how do we change our assessments to actually reflect what we value? I think that's a huge critical piece changing uh, math education. So with regard to persistence, um, what are your views about concepts like productive struggle in math? Yeah, I mean, we need to reward productive struggle, right? Like we need to say productive struggle is valuable. Uh, and I mean, I think the idea of productive struggle is, you know, it's, it's not just struggling, but you need to have strategies for struggling in a way that helps you know, helps you get unstuck, um, trying things out, right? Like struggling without productive struggle looks like if you, if something doesn't work, try something else, right? Like constantly be on the move. It's kind of like you're in a cave and you're trying to, you know, find your way through a cave. If you go down one path and it's a dead end, well, you turn around, you don't just sit there, right? You turn around and you try something else. Um, that's, that's the mindset of somebody who's an explorer. Um, 
is to is to constantly push through when you encounter an obstacle uh, and you learn things when you do that that's the same way in math it certainly should be should be um should be like that as well and and this is getting interesting because as you're talking about this i'm just thinking about this I'm just thinking about this, I just, this question that comes to my mind. How can we have students be successful at productively struggling through um, mathematically rich tasks if they may not have the prerequisite content knowledge mm -hmm. to engage with it? So I think about um, one of my favorite cartoons growing up, uh, Inspector Gadget. Inspector Gadget, see, I'm dating myself. Inspector Gadget had all these different gizmos and tools that he had when he was in um, adverse situations, and he could just say, "Well, go 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 get your skis, go go get your rocket," and all of a sudden, a rocket just pops out of nowhere and he flies out of trouble. I think in math in order to get out of those ruts or those different situations where you feel stuck, you have to know there has to be a knowledge of the relationship between different numbers and different skills. And that's something that we constantly hear about. Um, yeah. I just read an article or saw an article from the New York Times, I believe, saying that there's been a decline in math and even reading scores as a result of the pandemic. And that was the case the year before, and that was the case the year before that. So it's just something that we're still grappling with in 2022. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And in fact, it, you know, many of the comments on that New York Times article pointed out that th this decline has been happening for some time and we can't blame it all on the pandemic. Right. Um, part of it is, I think, uh, at least many of the 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 the, um, the uh, comments in that article were pointing to uh, just the, the the change in our in in our um, you know cultural consumption of of you know TikTok videos and and instant gratification uh, on Facebook and you know things like that, where we're not able to actually sit and wrestle with a an idea for a while. Uh, and mm -hmm. uh, and and somehow have the 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 vision to be able to say this is actually valuable for me to actually to sit and wrestle. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that also points to another thing that 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 we need to think about in terms of how we scaffold what uh, what students do in our classrooms is that they need to be able to have experiences where the struggling actually leads to the joy or the thrill of discovery uh, and so you know part of the the challenge for teachers is to figure out how to do that scaffolding in a way that uh, where students can feel like they're making progress and that it's worthwhile yeah. but then the other part of the the, the the piece is to be able to say even if you didn't solve this problem guess what it, you're st you still built your mathematical muscles by thinking hard Right. Like, um, you know, I think it comes as a surprise to many kids that if you want to, you know, build yourself up physically, you actually have to work out. Right. You actually have to train. You actually have to 
to uh, do things that are that um, that um, take effort, right? Uh, and you know, you're playing some game, soccer game, whatever it is, and you don't win that game. It's doesn't mean it was all for naught. You've actually built up muscles. You built up uh, strategic thinking that'll help you win that next game, even if you didn't win the current one. Nah, for sure. But it's funny, instant gratification is something that in the math world we've grappled with before social media even came to existence. Um, instant gratification has always been a form of, you see a, you see a student struggling, rather than them discovering maybe the algorithm, discovering how these numbers work together, how are they interrelated? It's like, you hate to see them struggle. They're at on the verge of crying. All right, here you go. I'm gonna give you this. I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna start this first step for you. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, you do the rest. Mm -hmm. Or I'll do the first two, you do the last two. Cause we don't want, we wanna see them feel good about themselves. Yeah. But I think it's, but I think that's what gives people a, a false sense of invincibility, uh, you know, about uh, their ability to do math because of the instant gratification. And I'm someone who experienced some of that. And I was pretty strong. I've always been pretty strong. But like I said earlier, when I got to college, I realized there is still a lot that I need to learn. But thankfully, I had the work ethic to to work through that, and it had some success. But that's not always the case for some of our other uh, math learners. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally, totally uh, resonate with that. Yeah, for sure. But um, I want to go ahead and move on to the next segment. So we have a segment that we call Show Your Work. So show your work is probably arguably the most popular phrase that we hear in math classrooms. Um, I'm sure you've had students come up to you and you know they're like, Dr. Sue, you know, check out my work. And you might not see that evidence of mathematical thinking. And it's like, okay, I see your final solution, but where's the evidence how did you get to this final destination i need to know so that i can get a better assessment of how to support you because there may be there may be certain gaps in the way that you're thinking about math even though you got the right answer that doesn't always mean that you've fully understood what's happening so we we tell people show your work um show me how you got there and it's just something that we still do today in uh 2022 but in this context of this podcast when we say show your work the work equates to receipts and you have a lot of receipts in terms of the work that you've done with trying to teach people how math can be inclusive and in how we live um in our daily lives and you wrote this awesome book, which I'm dying to dig into even some more, Mathematics for Human Flourishing. And for what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, 
the journey to writing this book started when you uh, did a speech. I think it was your farewell speech um, as the president of the Mathematical Association of America, if I'm not, if I'm correct. And that was about maybe a five, six minute speech. So I guess what I'm wondering is how does that speech evolve into this? Did you even have an idea that you were going to be writing this when you did a speech or was this something that you just had an epiphany about said, all right, there's something here. People are resonating with this idea of human flourishing. So right. let's, let's write about it. So talk to me about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, um, so I, I, I served as president of the Math Association of America, which is an organization that has a lot of college level math faculty and also math enthusiasts. Uh, and, um, and usually at the end of your term, you give a, a talk about something related to math. Uh, and I guess I wanted to, to talk about something deeper than just talking about a particular math idea, right? Like you could talk about, give a talk, give a talk on math. I'd rather actually get talk about why we do math. And so the, the origin of the speech was stepping back a moment and asking the question, why do we do anything we do? Right? Like the reason, if you think about a hobby that you have, the reason you pursue that hobby is probably because it meets some basic human desire that you have. And so the speech was basically centered around uh, human desires that we have. I think in the speech, I focus on five human desires, but in, in the book, I expanded that to, to uh, 12 human desires that all of us have. You know, desire for truth, the desire for beauty, desire for play, desire for justice, desire for love. Like these are all human desires that every human being has. Uh, and then the, the the question is, if math is is really as wonderful as some people say, how what human desires does it meet? Right? And and I argue it meets many of the same human desires that motivate you to do anything that you do. Uh, and so that's how the speech evolved. Uh, and um, when I gave the speech, it was received um, well, uh, received with tears by by many uh, in uh, in in really addressing you know some of the heart the heart issues in mathematics. They're heart issues as well, but you know the questions about why we see some people as math people, why we don't see other people as math people. Uh, but also like uh, getting at what are the positive ways that, that math actually does help shape the way people live better and live well and thinking clearly uh, and experiencing beauty uh, and growing persistence, you know, all these kinds of things. And so the, 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 the um, speech talked about human desires, it talked about human virtue, uh, and it tried to paint a picture an inclusive picture of how it is that math can, in its best forms, help people flourish. Uh, but also, while also pointing out ways in which, when it's not practiced well, math can, can be harmful. Uh, and so that, that was how the speech uh, started. And then the book, um, as a result of the speech, I started getting uh, contacted by various publishers who were interested in 
asking whether I was interested in writing a book. And so I, um, so that's how the book came about. As I, I, I said, okay, let me, let me, let me cast a wider net and, and think about several more human desires that all of us have and how math might meet those desires. That's really how the book evolved. Wow. And I know you mentioned there, you said that there were five virtues or desires that you focused on in the speech, but there's actually 12 in total. Well, um, yeah, they're not, it's not, it's not exhausted. I'm sure you could think of more. I just chose, <laughs> I chose a, a, a larger set of things to think about, like community. Mm -hmm. you know, we all have a desire for freedom. We all have a desire for community. We have a desire for, um, uh, for exploration. Um, and then I, you know, I chose a few ones that you wouldn't normally think of, right? Like I talked about how human beings have a desire for permanence, right? For things that are eternal, right? Uh, and, uh, and how math might meet that desire to, to, to actually have things that you, you hold on to uh, through Think and Thin. Um, I, I talk a little bit about how math, you know, we all have a desire for power, right? And power mm -hmm. is often seen as a bad word. Uh, and it is in some ways because people don't use power well, right? right, it's, right. It was a, an opportunity to talk about the difference between creative power and coercive power, right? Creative power is um, using your, your abilities to, to help other people flourish, to help other people uh, be creative, um, whereas coercive power often limits the, the ability people have to be creative. Um, and in its best forms, math endows us with various powers, right? The creative powers that we have often, you know, they look like, you know, being able to quantify, to define, to strategize, to visualize, to be able to um, look at a problem from multiple points of view. Right. These are all things that help us be creative. Uh, and so uh, so we talked about many of those virtues uh, as well. Um, but of course, you know, people are, can, can use and take any good thing and use it in, in a coercive way. And so um, the book tackles some of those, those harder issues as well. And, and you mentioned um, in the book, truth and justice as virtues that are important in human flourishing. And I feel, and I wanna focus on those two in particular because we look at the current uh, social political context we're in, yeah. those are two virtues that we are constantly grappling with yeah. and trying to grasp and, and, and attain. Yeah. So we think about what's going on in different states in terms of just the censoring of math textbooks, for instance, and the censoring of certain curricular models in math. Mm -hmm. um, the idea that certain math textbooks and certain curricula can indoctr indoctrinate students, which I just think is absurd, but that's a whole nother uh, conversation. Mm -hmm. I, I want to know from you personally, how do you believe uh, that truth and justice should manifest themselves within a math classroom? 
and even beyond that. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when you think a little bit about, uh, about some of our issues that are going on today, you know, one is the prolif proliferation of lies, right? Things that are not true uh, that, um, and yet, you know, a lot of people are sort of latch onto because why? Because they don't think through some things for themselves and they just blindly follow authority, right? Mm -hmm. um, we, part of what we are doing in the math classroom uh, is helping students understand and think through things for themselves, right? Like in a great math education should build in us a thirst, a hunger to understand, right? To understand truths for ourselves and not yes. blindly follow authority. Um, to be able to say, well, gosh, if so-and-so quoted a, a, a statistic, is that reasonable, right? Like, is it reasonable to believe that, you know, uh, take, take your favorite example, that, you know, that, uh, that this or that happened, right? And it happened, you know, on a scale, you know, that's, you know, take, you know, the election, right? Uh, is it reasonable to believe that, you know, that, you know, hundreds of precincts could have had enough fraud, if you believe there was fraud, to overturn an election, right? Mm -hmm. uh, does that, does that, can I think through that for myself without just blindly following what somebody said, right? Even somebody who, who I, who I normally agree with, right? Like math, a math classroom does have something to say to that, right? A math classroom ought to be able to build in us people who are explorers, who are investigators, who will say, is this answer reasonable, right? Yes. Do I, you know, do I think? And, and of course, you know, truth, when you think about what truth is, it's, it can be complex. It can be multifaceted, right? So I'm not saying that truth sometimes doesn't have a subjective aspect. But mm -hmm. what I am, what I am saying is that, that, when you look at the whole truth, you know, we talk about in the U.S. anyways of, of speaking the truth, seeking the truth, the whole truth, right? And nothing but the truth, right? Like, what does that mean? Well, the idea of the whole truth is when you gather in multiple perspectives and you look at the, the totality of the situation, is this true, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and math teaches ought to teach us to, to think of, think about things in that way, right? When we tell a, when we have a, a student solve a problem in multiple different ways, they are developing confidence that they actually have the right answer because yes. they know it's not just this method that gave this answer, but it's this one. And now I can put those two things together and say, yes, I'm more confident now I have the truth. Or if this method and this method are giving different answers, then that causes you to dig deeper and ask why like oh um did i mess something up or you know that there you 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 know you're able to to decide for yourself if what i've just done is true you don't need to look to your teacher or any other authority to be able to say you have an answer right um and so i mean that's the kind of thing that i think people often forget is that we are trying to build thinkers in the classroom and that thinking is going to serve students well in the rest of their lives uh, in, in the world. Yes. Uh, so true. And when we think about truth, 
the most important thing that we have to account for is is context. Mm -hmm. We all look at truth from different vantage points. Yeah. And that's what informs the way that we all view the world uh, yeah. through our eyes. And I think that's how, I think that's why when we speak about truth, the conversation is so nuanced. And as you mentioned, can be subjective. Um, but that's something that, you know, we still have to uh, continue to uncover and, and unpack. But uh, I got one more question before we get to lightning round. And I'll be remiss if we didn't make mention of your good friend, uh, Mr. Christopher Jackson, who is a huge inspiration for you um, to write this book. And, and a collaborator. Uh, and a collaborator as well. So yeah. I wanted to give you an opportunity to just share who Christopher is, just his story, because it's, it's one that people need to hear about. When we think about human flourishing, his story and, and what he has persisted in life embodies all the things that we've been talking about uh, for the past now 48 minutes. So yeah. as we get Florida, just talk about Christopher. Yeah, Chris, uh, Christopher Jackson uh, is an incarcerated man uh, who uh, discovered a love for math in prison. Um, he um, was a high school dropout got involved in drugs, a uh, series of armed robberies, and it led to uh, a 32-year sentence for, um, for his crimes. Uh, and he wrote me uh, now, maybe, I guess it's now about nine years ago, uh, after being in prison for, for a while, uh, for something like seven years. Uh, and he had studied his, basically studied math textbooks from algebra up through calculus, and he was interested in finding out how to further his math education. Uh, and so, you know, one of the, the 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 questions that I open the book with is the question: When you think about who does math, would you think of Christopher? Right? Would you think of? Uh, would would you would you think it was possible for an incarcerated man to to love math? Uh, and you know, in, in, in many ways, his, you know, intellectually, if you ask me that question, of course I would say math is for everyone. I'm a math teacher, right? Like I'm a, I'm somebody who should, who should be able to say that without, without even questioning, like the question. And yet when I got this letter out of the blue asking me this, you know, ask from him asking, telling me his story and asking me for help and for his math education, I have to, I have to admit, part of me said, is this guy for real? Like, <laughs> is it like, really, you know? And what does he see in math? Because I, I certainly see some things in math, but does he see the same things? And uh, and so uh, in many ways, the, the story that I tell of Christopher is not really a story about me teaching him math. It's more about what he's taught me, right? It's more about how his example has helped me um, reframe the kinds of uh the kind of view I have about math uh, and how it really is for everyone and what it can do for everyone, right? Like Chris is likely not going to use the calculus uh, that he learned in a real job, right? Like because he's going to be in prison for so long. Uh, so what, 
why was he learning it? Right? There's a question, right? What does he see in, in the pursuit of calculus uh, if it's not something he's ever going to use? And that's the same question all our students ask, right? Like, why do I need to learn this stuff? Yes. Well, it's, it's not necessarily for the skills, is it? Right? It's not necessarily because he's ever he's going to take a derivative in order to solve a real, you know, a real world problem. It's because it's building in him certain virtues that are enabling him to live a flourishing life, even in difficult circumstances, even in less than ideal a situation. Right? Um, his his body is in prison, but his mind is free. Right? Like that's that's part of what he's he's seeing through mathematics is the freedom that it, it gives him to explore uh, a space that was uh, until only recently uh, available to him and and just christopher's story is an example of what's possible when we expand our view of what math can be yes and and that's really the the impetus behind this book and That's the right. lessons that people can learn from this. So I encourage you to buy it. Whether you love math or you have a disdain for it, there is a lesson for everybody. So I implore you all to give it a look and purchase it because I think it's something that we need in this uh, current sociopolitical context we're in. It just fits it perfectly. And I thank you again uh, for writing this because this is a book that I wish I had when I was going through my doubts hmm. during my undergrad years. I wish I, I'd had that book, you know, 20 plus years earlier, but you know what? Um, better late than never. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I'm a, and of course, I part of what I do in the book is tell my own story of doubt, right? Like. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I earlier I told you when I thought math was beautiful, but you know, much later, yeah, I had somebody tell me you'll never be good enough to be a mathematician, right? Like that's right. Like what? You know, like you might think that's a little bit of surprise now, but it, you know, at the time it was like kind of um, it was a very hurtful comment, right? Like if, if it's possible, like why do we do that to each other? Why do we tell people that you're not cut out for this? Um, that's part of the the question that this book explores as well. Yes, for sure. And uh, to close us out, we have a quick lightning round. So just a few uh, quick hitter questions to wrap up this excellent conversation. Uh, so the first question I have for you is, what's your favorite math concept to teach or learn? Either one. Uh, favorite math concept, um, I, well, I like teaching uh, topology, which is like the study of, of stretching things. Uh, it's, uh, it's a cousin of geometry. Uh, and so that I would, that's, that's, if I had to answer quickly, that's probably what I would say. All right, topology it is. What's the most difficult math concept or skill that you've learned or have had to teach? Uh, difficult. Um, uh, gosh, that's a hard question. Uh, I guess I would say um, abstract algebra probably was hard for me to learn, uh, but I eventually conquered it. 
uh, in not fully, but certainly felt like it's it's less intimidating to me now. There we go. And if you can invite three influential figures that are alive to dinner, who would they be? That are alive? Yes. Oh, uh, let's see. Um, uh, probably uh, Barack Obama. Um, uh, um, probably um, um, Patrick Stewart. Uh, Jean-Luc oh, Picard from Star Trek. Oh, Star Trek, yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, sure. And um, a third one. Uh, they have to be alive. Gosh, uh, that's that's what makes it hard. Dead or alive, they could be. They could be deceased too. Oh, deceased. Uh, Jesus. All right. There it is. Oh, Jesus is alive. He's alive. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. <laughs> Very much so in our spirit. <laughs> uh, but uh, Dr. Francis Sue, thank you so much for coming on to this podcast. Yeah, thank this you is, for having me. Yeah. This has been a great way to close out the year. Uh, we've been doing this since January. So this is a treat to, to have you uh, close it out for us. But before you go, please let people know how they can connect with you on social media um, and also help support the work that you're doing. So if you have a website that they can go to to learn more about you, uh, this is the chance for you to share that. Uh, sure. Yeah. So uh, my website is francissue.com. Uh, that's spelled like my name, F-R-A-N-C-I-S-S-U-H.com. Uh, my, uh, my Twitter handle is Mathyop. Uh, that's, M-A-T-H-Y-A-W-P. Um, and uh, I guess I'm also on other social media, but probably Twitter's the way to to get, you know, instant news out. But you can find me on, uh, you can find me on uh, on other social media as well. All right, there it is, y'all. So uh, thank you again, Francis, for coming on. And hopefully, maybe in the next calendar year, 2023, we can do this again. Yes. Thank you so much. Thanks for all the work you're doing in uh, making math, uh, the love of math, uh, uh, accessible and available to everyone. Uh, thank you. I hope you have a good rest of the day. Okay. You too. All right. All right, y'all. Uh, this is going to be the last time we're together until 2023. So until 2023, I'm wishing you all a good morning. Good afternoon, good night, wherever you are in the world. And we're going to do this again sometime next year. So have a good rest of the year. Uh, happy holidays. And guess I'll see you all in 2023. All right, y'all. Peace out. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Radical Math Talk. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, and all other streaming platforms. We are always striving to provide you with quality content. So if you love what you heard today, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And to check out the video episodes of the podcast, you can visit our website at Identity Talk 4, numeral 4, educators.com. I'll say it one more time Identity Talk 4, educators.com. Thank you and have a great day.